book of Romans here is, you know, beginning our studying through uh, the book of Romans here. And it occurred to me that that was really kind of what I prayed this morning, what we sung about in that song was really my prayer for us as we work through the book of Romans. Paul is, you know, going to cover a tremendous amount of ground theologically and doctrinally in the book of Romans. But, you know, all of it, again, the point being is that um, anything that we read, anything that we learn is for the purpose of drawing our heart and fixating our heart upon the Lord so that we might love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. At the end of Romans, there is no theological exam. There's no doctrinal test that anybody is going to be taking. The thing that we need to be asking ourselves is as we are learning through the book of Romans and we are learning all of the things that God has written down for us in that book, the question that we must ask is, how is what I am learning transforming me to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ, to be prepared to be with him forever, and to be dedicated to living for him as long as I am apart from him? How is what it is that I'm going to learn actually going to be transformational in my life in the way that I live and my purpose for why I exist? Is it going to help me grow to love Christ more, to love the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit more with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, or am I just learning more stuff? Because if it's just about learning more stuff, then there's still time to pray that God would change your heart. It's about having a heart that <clears throat> loves him above all things. Um, and it's what we're going to see today in Romans 1, 1 is just that, that Paul's, um, in this ever so brief testimony that Paul gives of himself, he's writing as one whose heart has been gripped by the love of God shown to him in Christ. And it set him on a trajectory of living for him, which in his in his case, he knew was to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. But in all things, how he identified himself first and foremost was as a servant of Christ, a slave to Christ. Um, as you can tell, we're only going to be in Romans 1-1 today. There's no rush through the book of Romans. Like I said, the, the point is for heart transformation. And as I was reading through Rome, look, y'all are lucky that Romans 1.1 didn't turn into four sermons in and of itself, because it could have been. We could have done a sermon just on the first word of the book, Paul, who he was. We could have done a sermon on what it means to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could have done a sermon on what it means for him to be an apostle, and we could have done a sermon on what it means to be set apart for the gospel. We're going to attempt to get all of that in one, and if you know me, that's, I'm cramming to do all of that into one sermon. Um, so before we get into um, the actual text, just to um, overview information on the book of Romans, it's written by Paul, written most likely from Corinth, about 57 AD. The letter was most likely delivered by Phoebe from Corinth to the believers in Rome. 
Um, and he does in the letter what he wants to do in person. He wants to preach the gospel, and he wants to apply it to daily living. He wants to preach the gospel, and then he wants to bring the gospel home and help them understand how the contents and the truth of the gospel message actually impact the way that they live their lives from day to day. And this is the same that's true for us. We should be understanding, embracing and receiving, digesting the gospel in such a way to where it is affecting the way that I live my life from day to day. And we'll get into that a little bit as we, as we consider um, this idea of being called a servant of Christ. The church in Rome was a church that Paul had never visited um, I know that a lot of people think that it was probably planted by Peter. That's probably not the case as well. Um, there were believers in Pentecost from Rome. There were people um, during Acts chapter 2, verse 10, we see that there were people from Rome in Jerusalem during Pentecost. And when they saw the miraculous work that was done there, and they heard the preaching of the gospel, they were cut to the heart, they were baptized, and then they, everyone went back home, and these believers went back home to Rome. And by the time that Paul is writing this letter, the church in Rome has been well-established made up, comprised of Jew and Gentile, probably primarily Gentiles though. And Paul's writing this letter to a church that he had never visited, and he's trying to instruct them and help them to um, live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Um, Paul wants to unify them in the gospel, and then he wants to have the church in Rome actually support him as he goes on and he plans to preach the gospel into Spain. So Paul is always thinking of, I want to encourage the churches, I want to plant the churches, and I want the churches to support the missionary work that I'm doing so that the gospel may continue to go out. And so he sees Rome as the, in that context as well. He, wants, he genuinely wants to love them and preach the gospel to them and see them grow in Christ, but then he wants for them to continue to, to contribute to his missionary enterprise that he has and he plans to go on to, to Spain. Um, the church in Rome, you know, Rome itself was um, a really, to say that it was by some considered to be the center of the known world at the time might have been an understatement, certainly the center of the Roman Empire, which was vast, which had its sights set on world domination. And we've seen this all throughout world history. Um, and we see it in parts of the world now, that there are parts of the world seeking to control and dominate the world. And Paul looks at this as a great opportunity to preach the gospel and to strengthen the believers that are a part of this church. Um, Rome was an incredibly diverse um, place to be, to live, um, but it was incredibly um, brutal in its um, exercise of seeking world domination. Any country or people that had tried to oppose Rome was absolutely decimated, and Jerusalem would, would feel that decimation in 70 AD themselves. Slavery was one thing that was absolutely rampant. It was incredibly harsh, and every form of abuse that you can think of was practiced and was normalized in Rome when you owned a slave. And the reason why I mention that is because slavery the idea, Paul picks up this idea of slavery and uses it as a major theme in the book of Romans, especially in Romans chapter 6, which we will actually hit on today as he calls himself a servant, a slave of Christ. And he's seeking to transform that mindset of what it actually means to be a believer and to belong to Christ. Um, but Rome was not a godless people. 
the emperor himself was considered to be a god. And they had a pantheon of gods that they worshipped. Um, but they believed that, and they actually believed that the gods were giving them their Roman Empire. And so Paul is, again, appealing to a group of people that know that they worship the true, the triune God, and helping them grow and continue to persevere and thrive in a context of idolatry and paganism. They're, they're steeped in, in worldliness. It's all around them. There's, there's prosperity, but there's brutal slavery. There's a pantheon of gods, and all of this stuff is this whirling mixture of which this church in Rome is um, called to live, and not only live in, but to thrive and to bear fruit. And that's his hope for them, and that's the reason why he writes the letter to them. He's seeking to help the church grow that is steeped in a culture um, that is very similar to ours in many ways, um, facing incredible pressure from the outside. But he's also going to address tensions that are occurring within the church as well. So as we get into Romans chapter 1, verse 1 this morning, um, we want to keep in mind that he's writing to believers living in a very pagan, worldly society, and he's calling them and encouraging them to hold fast to the gospel, to be unified with one another, to support him and his gospel ministry, and he's going to lay out this, this doctrinal treaties of truths that are meant to impact their lives very deeply and very personally and even transformationally. Romans has been used, uh, St. Augustine, uh, Martin Luther, they came to know Christ by reading through the book of Romans, and so many other people have as well. And so um, I'm encouraged, and I hope that we are encouraged as we continue to um, begin our study through the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we'll read it. Paul, an, a, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul identifies himself first as the author of the letter. Um, he begins his ever so brief testimony talking about himself, and then he works his way outward, and he ends with, with God and who he, is, who he is called by God to be, what he is called by God to do. And this is if you're familiar with Paul, this is his mindset. He's, he has the mindset that his life is all about magnifying God, putting on display the work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he speaks about when he proclaims the gospel. He speaks of the work of Jesus Christ. Paul, though, was not always a man set on this mission. It was not a man that always had his heart gripped by the good news of the gospel. Wayne read for us this morning a little bit out of Galatians chapter 1. Paul was so zealous. He was beyond all of his peers into persecuting the church. There are several places in um, the scriptures where we see Paul give a little bit of an information about who he was prior to coming to know Christ. Um, we would read in Philippians chapter 3, he gives some of this information as well in verses 5, 6, and 7, talks, talking about how he had confidence in the flesh. He came from a system of which mankind believed in the Pharisees that they could, by their own virtue, by their own merit, work their way into the good graces of God. And now that is one of still the most 
prevalent ways of thinking in the world that as long as I am a good person, as long as my good outweighs my bad, that I can, ex- I can receive forgiveness and I will be accepted into heaven based upon my own goodness and based upon my own merit. And Paul came from this world. He not only came from this world, he lived in this world. This was his world. He taught this world. He was steeped in that type of world and thinking. But all of that changed one day. Acts chapter 7 tells us that he was there present when they're persecuting Stephen and they stone him to death. And he's known as Saul at that time. And the men are laying their garments before his feet as he stands in a position of watching what it is that they are doing as these men are stoning Stephen to death and they're laying their garments before his feet. And he's giving his approval. And in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 it says that Saul was there approving of what it was that they were doing and a great persecution broke out against the church. Paul, Saul at that time was spearheading the persecution movement, putting into jail and killing those who were disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives a little bit of information about himself in Philippians chapter 3. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, he describes himself. So zealous was he that he, his description of how zealous he was was that he, was that he was a persecutor of the church. Do you want to know who I was? And do you want to know what kind of Pharisee I, I, I used to be? I was a persecutor of the church. I used to kill and to imprison and seek to destroy those people who were of the way and of the faith, those followers of this man, Jesus Christ. That's who he used to be. Not only that, he described himself in Acts chapter 22 as he's giving him, giving a, another place here where he gives a little bit of a testimony. He says that he was a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to death, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Didn't matter. In Paul's, in Saul's mind at that time, it didn't matter who you were. Man, woman, I was a persecutor of the way, delivering people into prison and even death if that's what it meant. And I studied at the feet of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was the, the leader of the Sanhedrin, the, the prominent religious political group in Jerusalem. Gamaliel was the, was the leader, and Paul sat at his feet. And if you know anything about first century discipleship, it wasn't, a disciple was never just meant to learn what it was that their master knew. It was to become like their master in every way, shape, and form so that they would even teach with the same intonations and, and speech patterns of the one of the master that was teaching them. They were to try to mimic and model their master in every single way. And by the way, that's another biblical theme that is picked up in scripture. That, uh, that is what a disciple is called to be only when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be like our master in every way, 
and thought, and deed, and word, and desire. And Paul, though, was sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, being raised and groomed to be the next up-and-coming man, and he was the man. Persecuting the church, putting people to death, doing whatever was necessary in many ways to advance his own career. He was educated, he was trained, he was zealous, but all of that changed when he met the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting is that much about Paul actually remains the same. The difference is, is that at one point of his life, he had this, this burning passion and zeal that consumed him for to be the Pharisee of all Pharisees and to live a life that was set on this trajectory for his own self-glorification and his own self-advancement. But when Christ got a hold of his heart, it's not as if the passion and the zeal was washed away and went away. It was redirected. And now his life was all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's... And and I think that there's, there are things from that that we can take away as well. I know that some people think that anything that you learned in any sort of education or training or experience that you may have had in your life pre-Christ is all worthless, but it's not. Many of the things that you know and in many of the ways the person that you are, that you were then pre-Christ is still a part of who you are only now. It's used for sanctified purposes for the preaching of the gospel and for, help, for contributing to the needs of the saints and for building up the church. You consider God's sovereignty, right? If we consider God's sovereignty, everything in our lives is, is under his control and always has been. And he was long before, you think of how Paul talked about it in Galatians 1, how God had set me apart before I was born and in this particular time called me the same thing for us. Many of the things that you experienced, that you learned pre-Christ, that was all God's previous working, planting, sowing, forming you into the person that he's going to use after you come to know Christ. Now, there are certainly things pre-Christ, right, that like we need to cut all ties with. But there are things in our lives that made us who we are pre-Christ that we are not called to cut ties with, but to use in sanctified ways, changed ways. Now being used instead of for self-serving purposes, but for God, honoring and God-pleasing and God-glorifying purposes. John Newton wrote a a hymn titled An Evil Long I Took Delight. And I can imagine that he was, he could relate to Paul's conversion. The first stanza of that hymn says, An evil long I took delight, un unawed by shame and fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. John Newton talks about how his life was set upon an evil I took delight in doing evil unawed, unfazed by shame and fear until a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. John Newton had his life set upon a particular sinful trajectory until God opened up his eyes and set his face 
upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Very similar to Paul, going in one direction. But when God gets a hold of that person's heart, their entire life is changed. Now being used to honor the Lord rather than living for himself. And the way that he identifies himself first, Paul, not Paul the Apostle, not here at least, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus Christ. In all of his 13 letters, only in three does he open up with identifying himself as a servant. And that word servant means slave. Simply means slave. He does it here in Romans, he does it in Philippians, and he does it in Titus. It's the only three letters where he opens up identifying himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Most of the other ones, it's an apostle. But here, and you can imagine why, it's a church that he had never visited. He's identifying himself as a slave to Christ. Like I said, this is going to play a major role later on in chapter 6. What's interesting is that he doesn't say Paul called to be a slave of Christ. He just identifies himself as this is who I am. To be, to, to, to be Paul, to no longer be Saul, but to be Paul means I'm a slave to Christ. It, it means it, it has built within it. It is saturated with the idea of Christ being, of Jesus being his Lord, being his master, being his owner, and Paul has no issues with that. He rejoices in it. He embraces it. It is a privilege to be owned by Jesus. I'm a servant of Jesus. I belong, I'm a slave of Jesus. I belong to him. I have no rights of my own. He has bought me. He has purchased me. The primary way that, uh, that Paul looks at himself is that I am a slave to Christ and I do not belong to myself. I belong completely, wholeheartedly to this man, Jesus, who is the Christ. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. It means he is God. He is Lord, creator, sovereign over all things. And Paul says, he is the one that I belong to. And he says it freely, and he says it joyfully, as should we. I often wonder how many times do I, do we think of ourselves in that way? When you think of yourself, is the first thing that comes into your mind at, is servant of Christ. I would say that if that was the primary way that we viewed ourselves, much of our strife, and much of our conflict, many of the things that we struggle with would not be issues in our lives. Because a servant, you think about this, a, a servant, a slave is one who owns nothing and gives of themselves. A slave, a servant is one who is at their core a worker, a giver of themselves to the one who owns them. And if I'm a giver, that means that I am not a taker. That means that my life is not about me. 
My life is not, a, a servant's life is not about them. And it's not about what they can, what they can obtain and what they can have in ways, that, in, in ways that they want people to look at them and view them. A servant's life is all about doing the will of their master. All of their life is, bent, is oriented towards what pleases the master. And Paul is using this language and transitioning it into biblical language and getting them to, to, to reorient their hearts in a way where they're thinking of themselves as he thinks of himself. He's not asking them to do anything that he doesn't do himself. In many ways, he's saying, we're the same. I'm a slave, and you're a slave, and, but our master is, is Jesus. He is our Christ, and our desire and our will is to do whatever he calls us and asks us to do. And now you take everything in the Bible that God commands us to do, and you think about how often, how many of those things are about, think about the commands of God. How many of those things are about you getting what you want? Like zero. What are they about? They're about loving God, glorifying God first, and then loving your neighbor, blessing those around you. This is why when we, even when we gather together on Sunday mornings, it's not about what am I going to hear? What am I going to receive? What, it's not about me. It's about how can I go and give, use what God has given to me to bless others, to build others up, to encourage others. Paul calls himself a slave. He identifies himself this way first, and we should as well. And he identifies who he is a slave of, Christ Jesus. He would pick this up again in Philippians chapter 3. We already read verses 4, 5, and 6 regarding how he used to view himself. But then he says this in 7 through 11. Remember, he talked about he was a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless, like a Hebrew of Hebrews, his law of Pharisee. But whatever gain I had, any of this that I once considered gain and advancement and good in my life, it's loss. It was all loss. I considered it all loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. He's found something better, right? He was once we are people, creatures, that we will live our lives oriented towards what we think is going to make us happy. And he was at one point convinced that being a Pharisee of the Pharisees was what his life was about and what would satisfy him and make him happy. And then a new object struck his sight, and he considered all that previous stuff lost, and he now finds that everything is lost compared to the surpassing, greater worth of knowing Christ Jesus just to know him. I mean, it's just, it's about knowing Christ and being in fellowship with him. Anything else is like icing on the cake. If God would give me another day to share the gospel with someone, to use a gift that he's given me to bless someone else, that is, that is sheer blessing. But I know him. 
I'm in fellowship with him. That's what he loses everything for, to know Christ. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. They're pure trash. In order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Now he starts to talk about what it means to know Christ, having a righteousness through faith, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Paul is, to know Christ is the most valuable thing in the world, and if he gets to share in the sufferings of Christ, that's also a privilege. To share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That I may be any means possible, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That I may be with him. To know him, when I have him, when I be with him. Everything else is lost compared to knowing Christ. That's how he feels about being a slave of Christ. Jesus occupies his thinking, his living, his desiring. And this truth is what keeps him humble. It's what keeps great people humble. Anybody that God has used to any degree, this is the key to humility. And having this, this view of Christ and his, and his wonder and the privilege of being found in him and knowing him, that breeds contentment, breeds humility, it's at the core of what a Christian, a servant of Christ is. Not only is he a servant, a slave of Christ, but he's then called to be an apostle. In the Lord's house, there are many servants. Not all of them have the same job. Not all of them have served the same role. And Paul was called, literally, he was summoned, he was invited to this office. not of his own doing, being an apostle. None of the apostles chose this office for themselves. It's not something that you train for. It's not a class that you take. You don't go to a seminary to become an apostle. They were picked. They were chosen by God, ordained by him, summoned and invited to that office for a specific period of time. And the criteria for it were what we find in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. That one was to be, an, to be an apostle, had to be with the other apostles from the beginning. They had to witness the resurrection, and they had to be chosen by God. And that's why Paul would identify himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 11, as one, as an apostle that was untimely born, the least of the apostles, because he actually didn't meet several of those criteria, and yet God called him, summoned him to that office. And he, the way that he writes in 1 Corinthians is that he was one untimely born, unusually called to that office of the apostle, and the last of them as well. 
believing that the office of the apostle was closed when the first century apostles died. And they existed for a purpose, for a particular period of time. They served that purpose, and it was an incredible privilege. They spoke authoritatively. Before they had the entirety of the Scripture, God used the apostles, spoke to them, through them, for the good and that building of the body, used what it was that they spoke and wrote to write it down in Scripture so that we might have the apostles' teaching and then be devoted to it. He was called as a slave, as a servant. What is his job in the household of God? An apostle. Completely, sovereignly, by the selection of God in his life. It's interesting, I think about Paul had it, you know, Paul really had it all by worldly standards before coming to know Christ, and then he would have probably through the, you know, by the evaluation of many Christians, would have thought to have had it all as an apostle as well, and yet he still thinks of himself as a servant. In worldly standards, before he knew Christ, he was advancing in his career, and he had it all, and he was doing well. And then even after coming to know Christ, he's, he's an apostle. And yet, still considers himself a servant, a slave, one of the rest of the body. I think that's a good lesson for us, regardless of who we are, what God has called us to, the office that we have the gifts that he has given to us. At the end of the day, it's not about any of us. For we are just unworthy servants that have done what we have been called to do, right? It's all about the master. It's all about his honor. It's all about his glory. set apart as Paul was, as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. This is his purpose, this is his task as a servant, as an apostle, to speak of the master's work, to be set apart meant to be marked off by a boundary. It's something that God did. Again, you read through Acts chapter 9 and you familiarize yourself with Paul's conversion experience and you see that Paul was not seeking God he would get it right I mean he'll get into that Romans chapter 3 <laughs> no one seeks God all have gone astray speaking from personal experience he's on his way on the road to Damascus ready passionate to kill some people let's throw some people in jail today let's ruin some people's lives and then he meets the Lord Jesus Christ, and his life is completely changed. At that point, he's set apart for the work that God has for him. The master has called his servant. He's equipped him, summoned him to the office, and given him a message to preach. And his, Paul's life is poured out for the proclamation of the gospel. 
You tell me where to go. You tell me how long to be there. You tell me when to go. You tell me how long to stay. What I, all I know is what I'm going to say. What I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about Jesus. And I'm going to tell people how people can be made right with Jesus. That was, that's what he was set apart for. He knew he was a slave of Christ. He knew he was an apostle. But he knew that both of those things meant that his work was a, proclamate, was a proclaimer of the gospel message. What's interesting is that the word Pharisee actually means one that has been set apart. Paul thought that he was set apart before as a Pharisee. He had no idea what it means to be set apart. Now, belonging to Christ, he knows what it means all too clearly. And God's gospel is one that he would then go on to preach and proclaim, and we see that. We get a, we get a picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. of the power of the gospel. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross or the gospel is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He would say in verse 21, for since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Right? I mean, he'll go on in Romans 1, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, and this is what's important in Romans 1, 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we will eventually get to Romans 16 and 17, but to know now that the gospel message, the, the, the power of the gospel is that within that gospel message, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's made known. And so Paul would be set apart for the preaching of the gospel, set apart for the proclamation of the righteousness of God, of which he, he just, when we, again, later on we get into Romans 1 and Romans chapter 2, Paul is operating under the system. His standard operating procedure is that whoever he comes in contact with has an idea that God is real and that he exists. They simply, by their own sinfulness, suppress that truth. What Paul is doing is he's uncovering those layers to reveal what it is that they already know, that there is a God, that he is righteous, he is eternal in power, he is divine in nature, and he's revealed himself through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and in him and in him alone can a sinful man find forgiveness and be made right with God. That's his proclamation. That's the gospel. That every that that sinner, that mankind has sinned and fallen away, fallen short of the glory of God. Again, another Romans passage. But that mankind can be made right. There's reconciliation. There's forgiveness. And again, Paul would talk about this in length later on in Romans chapter 4, being justification by faith. But he's set apart for the gospel. And what I would say is this, is that if there is anybody in here today that does not know Christ, you do not know the gospel. You don't know what it is that we're talking about when we say the word, when we talk about the gospel. Let me make it clear to you that all mankind has sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we are condemned to hell for all of eternity. This is what awaits every single human being if God does not intervene and interject. And God has. And he has sent his son, Jesus, to pay that debt. You owe a debt. You are under the penalty of your sin. And it must be paid either by you or by someone else. And Jesus Christ is the only other someone else that can pay that debt. And he has. And the Father turns away none that come to him by faith. This is what Paul proclaimed, and this is what we proclaim, that there's salvation found in no one else other than in Jesus Christ. And so if, if you do not know Christ, the invitation is the, my invitation to you is the same as the invitation that Christ himself, that God holds out for every single person who hears the gospel, and that is the invitation to come, and to come by faith, and to receive forgiveness of sin. And now if you're here today and you do know the Lord Jesus Christ in that way, then we have incredible grounds for worship. I find that the only reason why my debt is paid because the man on the middle cross said I could come. You cannot come on your own. There's nothing that you have to offer. Love that the Father has for his people is one that he would send his own son to languish away upon a cross and to receive condemnation for our sin that we deserve fully poured out upon him. And we come based on his invitation and receive the mercy and the grace of God. And you get the privilege of becoming a servant, a child, bought by the blood of Christ and then equipped and used by him for eternal divine purposes. It's, it's incredible. Paul sees himself this way. And he calls us to see ourselves this way as well. Paul had a unique office and this unique call to preach the gospel as an apostle. But there are principles in it that are true and elements that apply to us as well. How do you express that your hope is in Christ? How is it that you are actively and intentionally expressing that your hope is in Christ? That your work, in your family, in anywhere that God allows you to go. How often do you speak of Jesus? How often do you share and proclaim the gospel truth to others? What place does his word really hold in your life? For Paul, it was his life. I, I, would, I would love to think of myself as Nick. 
servant of Christ Jesus. Just be happy stopping there. And then knowing that as his servant, I have the privilege of serving him by way of telling others about him and using whatever gift he's given to me to bless others and to glorify him. So we prepare to partake of communion this morning. Again, this is a reminder. A reminder for us of what it is that Christ has done. That we have died and that our lives are hidden with Christ in God by the work of Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. Communion is a time for us to remember what it is that Christ has done and how he has purchased us and the currency was his own body and blood. And so it's an opportunity for us to respond and worship, gratitude, and joy for being found in him and him paying the penalty for our sins. The elements are on the back tables. And if you're a believer, we invite for you to partake of communion. If you are not, then just please don't, part, don't grab the elements, but to think and consider what it is that we've talked about regarding the gospel and how you can be made right with God and receive forgiveness for your sins. For the rest of us, we partake of this with joy, humility, gratitude. It's an opportunity for worship. It's an opportunity for examination. It's an opportunity for confession as well as we come before him. So the elements are on the tables. I invite for you to get them, and you can return back to your seats, and we will partake of communion together in a few moments.
communion reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. Verse 22 reads, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. He said, take, this is my body. So we partake of the cracker together as it represents the body of Christ that was offered up for us. Remember that he, by his body, has borne our iniquities. Because of his work upon the cross, we stand now forgiven in his sight. And so with great humility and joy and privilege, we are mindful of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has secured for us, and so we partake of the bread together.